It's the Morgan Evans More or Less Pickleball podcast coming at you in three, two, one, boom. My guest today is one of the newest members of the Selkirk team, a pro that has set the benchmark for all else to strive towards. He's a 12-time major champion, he's an educator, and on the nice bloke scale, he's an 11, right up there with Glenn Peterson. Please welcome the legend that is Wes Gabrielson. Wes, how are you, mate? Good, how are you? I am very well, very well. So you're on board. Good man. You're with Team Selkirk. Couldn't be happier for you. I am enjoying it so far. Excellent. So far, so good. So obviously, you've had a a storied career, and uh, I did give plenty of details in the intro. But for those players out there that are unaware of who you are, I like to tell people that before Ben was Ben, there was you. Do you feel like that's a fair comparison or am I shooting for the stars there? You know, I feel like I've always been a pretty humble human. I think you're shooting for the stars, but I was blessed to start and play in an era where uh, I had very, very good partners that carried me to a lot of success. I knew you would say something like that. Jeez, you're kind of on the, yeah, you and Glenn Peterson, you're just just too nice. Well, he's a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt about it. So tell me, how did you get started in pickleball? Obviously, you look like you've played a lot of tennis in your time, so it was a relatively easy transition, I'm sure. But what uh, what kicked it off? Well, I actually was introduced to pickleball when I was in middle school. So in uh, PE class, uh, in middle school and high school, uh, I played a bit, but you know we had no concept of dinking or any of the strategy. We were playing with the wooden paddles uh, and actually a dura ball on a gym floor. So you can imagine how short those oh, rallies wow. were. Yeah. <laughs> and then in college, uh, on rainy days, we would go audit the pickleball class because our tennis practice would be you know rescheduled to a different time. But I played the sport for quite a while and then actually took a few years off. And uh, my uh, good friend and former mixed doubles partner, Christine Barksdale, who's a very good oh, um, yes. pro player, uh, she was my USTA mixed doubles tennis partner. And uh, we, oh, were, wow. we were at an event and she said, hey, do you want to go try pickleball? Have you ever played before? And I gave her my backstory and uh, the rest is history. That's amazing. So what year was that? That was, uh, well, it was, we were actually down at nationals for USTA. It was 2010. But I don't think we actually played uh, because of the rain. <laughs> but we, I ended up playing the first time with her in 2011. So January of 2011. That seems, well, that's 10 years ago. Jeez, that's incredible. It seems like 15. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Who was the top dog at that particular time? On the men's side, there were two or three names that stood out. Actually, the very first time that I played with Christine... Uh, we were playing doubles up in Vancouver, Washington, and I said, does anyone want to play singles? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> they said, uh, no, but there's this guy named Enrique that's going to show up, and he'd probably play in singles, and it was Enrique Ruiz. So wow. I think I played him six games, and I didn't win a point, and uh, <laughs> I, I was hooked. And he inspired me to, to switch hands uh, because of the way he was playing. So Oh, so you were... 
Were you playing right-handed before or you, you just experimented with ambidextrous? So I was actually in tennis, I served right-handed and then I hit left-handed. And you're probably wondering, why did you mm. serve left-handed? Because it's such a weapon. Mm. Uh, but I, I played baseball right-handed. So I threw, I threw right. It was natural. Uh, so I had ambidextrous tendencies already, but I just felt like I could cover more court in singles uh, if I switched hands. Uh, so Enrique was really uh, vital for me in terms of inspiring me to get better. He was definitely at the top. Uh, and then Tim Nelson was the the young gun at the time. That was kind of the oh. the man with the, uh, the target on his back that everyone was trying to take down because he was <laughs> so creative with how he played. Yeah, I, he was one of the first guys. When I came in, it was 2014 when I first kind of played. And uh, I remember it was Redmond Senior Center up in Seattle. And he would turn up once in a while and everyone was, ooh, that guy. And, <laughs> you know, at, at the time, he, you know, I was getting schooled left, right, and center by Chris Miller and Brian Ashworth. And I thought, wow, these, how could anyone be better than these guys? And then um, Tim would turn up and make everyone look a little silly. Yeah. What was interesting about him, I mean, he's a very smart human with a good court sense, but he's, as you know, he's got a very unique perspective on life <laughs> and personality. I'm saying that Indeed. in a politically safe way. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, he, you know, Kyle Yates and I have talked about this before too, and some other guys, he was kind of the young, the guy that was doing things differently, that was innovative uh, with the shot making. And, and I think mm. without him, we probably wouldn't see the transition to all of the trick shots. And, you know, you think about your beautiful serve uh, and mm -hmm. others and, and shots like that, where he was kind of the creative genesis, I think, in the sport with shot making. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we do have to play a little homage to the, not just uh, the nasty Nelson, but the rest of the Nelson. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, that's, that's important for people to hear because, you know, I don't remember what it was like when there was just him and then you, I suppose, and uh, Enrique, but watching him play and then seeing you play, I remember it was the first time in a, a tournament where I realized, oh my God, there are, there is such a giant leap in levels of, you know, five zero pickleball. I think I was playing against you and uh, Sarah Ansbury and... Mm -hmm. I just, if it was the first time ever, I felt like, I don't think there's anything I can do here. It's, we're just playing different sports right now. And it's <laughs> going to be, it could be, it could be years before I even figure out what it is that's, um, that's so different. But it was one of those eye-opening experiences that uh, I guess in not, not too dissimilar to when Enrique beat you, you know, six games straight, you went away and you were hooked. I, I felt the same way. I was just even more inspired to figure out this crazy game called Pickleball. Happy to provide the inspiration. And like I said, <laughs> Good partners help too. Sarah's a great player, so yeah, I oh know for sure. And it's great to see her still around and and yourself. You're uh, you're back in the game, but you did take a little bit of time off, much like myself during COVID. Was it just um, a time for a bit of a break, a, a good time for a break, or we're playing it safe? What's interesting is, I think just based on my job as a teacher and having a very unique year of we don't know what's going to happen next, it kind of limited some travel for me more so than than normal but also having some family members with some underlying health conditions i just felt like it was the the, the right thing for me to do and not go play as much uh stay a little bit closer to home and uh as a result of that i actually feel like in the i'll say in 2020 i feel like i played more pickleball i was i spent more time practicing on a court in 2020 than any other year i've played 
Wow. Because it was really kind of the only thing we were able to do uh, for a long yeah. time besides golf. So How's your golf going? You know, my golf game, <laughs> uh, I don't play as much as I'd like to. People ask me what my handicap is, and I always say my golf game. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I, I'm okay. I play bogey golf. I enjoy it. All right. All right. That's, that's not bad. So you were drilling much more so in 2020 than you had before. It looks like that's kind of been a, uh, a common theme amongst players during that uh, COVID period. And the level in which people have come back and we're seeing at the moment is, is really representative of that. You know, you're sort of mid-30s, aren't you? Yeah, 35, right on the dot. 35, right on the dot. Very nice. And I think you, you're seeing what we're all seeing. That it's less and less likely to see kind of 40-plus players in the final of these tournaments these days. Does that worry you? Do, you? do you feel like it's a step in the right direction for the sport? Or, you know, the fact that pickleball was always this very social, inclusive kind of things and, you know, fun for young and old. Is it time? Is, have we reached that critical mass? I feel like it's good inspiration for us uh, veterans like yourself and I and people who are getting into the game that are, you know, 40 plus and are playing pro, it's, it's good motivation to work harder to, to stay in that metal hunt. You know, I, I understand the game is younger and faster, and I think it's great. Uh, I think it's great for the sport. I've always been kind of of that blue collar mentality where each year, even if I am winning a few tournaments or, you know, back when I met you winning a lot of tournaments, I always wanted to get better. So for me, it's just part of the gradual progression of keeping myself in good shape and playing a lot to stay up to pace with the, uh, the progression of the sport. I think it's great. I think all the good young 20 year olds in there are great for the sport. Yeah. It's certainly the, what it, what it looks like now compared to what it looks like, uh, what looked like when I first got in, it's really apples and oranges and it's wonderful. We all kind of wanted the game to grow and get better and more money to come in. And now that it has, and is growing like wildfire, uh, you know, I'm seeing a whole bunch of six foot three monsters out there that um, are progressively tougher to deal with. So there's only so many times I can reinvent the serve and get away with uh, some sneaky stuff. So I'm kind of, I would like everyone to just dial it back a little bit. And um, perhaps there could be a selection committee of new players that can come in. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, when we played against each other, I think we played, it was three days in a row. You In Newport Beach, we played Rack. Mm. And then we yeah, played in the, we played in the men's, and then we played in the mixed. And uh, you're the only person in my ten year pickleball career that's ever nutmegged me with a serve. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I'll, I'll take that. I re I remember that trying to short hop one of your serves and uh, having it bounce through my legs and thinking I'm not going to do that again. So, <laughs> kudos to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings up an interesting point as well. As we speak, the rules committee may very well be voting to either ban or allow a lot of the, this new wave of creative serving, generally under the pretense that it is believed that it's not in the spirit of the game for the serve to be used as a weapon. Now, you've had more experience than the vast majority of players in professional pickleball today. What do you think about that? Do you believe the serve should be able to be used as a weapon? And bear in mind, we can edit this out. <laughs> well, you know, I've always felt like in doubles, the serve has been a weapon with your directional selection. Like where are you going to put the ball, depth, depth of the serve. Singles, I feel like people have put a little bit more power on their serve traditionally, and we're definitely seeing that carry over into doubles the last few years. Personally speaking, I don't have any issue with, you know, some unique 
twists to serves. I think, again, going back to my mindset of always wanting a challenge, trying to improve, uh, seeing mm. your serve for the first time, seeing Zane serve. I know that Susanna Barr's son Porter is, is flirting with the serve and it's become a, yeah. a really dangerous weapon uh, for him. I mean, he's already a solid player, but just another weapon for him. I don't mind the serve. I feel like it's, again, for me, a challenge to learn how to deal with it. So I don't have an issue with it. I feel like people can rise to the challenge and deal with it, uh, especially if it doesn't go away. So, Yeah, that's fair. Do you think you'll ever try and learn it? You know, I always come back uh, each year into tournaments when my, when I go into hibernation, as I call it, and I come back with some new funk and things I try and bring sure. out. So uh, I, I definitely will try some things. I don't know if I'll use it, but I'll, I'll, I'll flirt with it a little bit. Good man. Now, now that you're on Team Selkirk, I can legally teach it to you. So there you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Just come down to the desert and click your fingers with me for, for a week and uh, you'll get it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> It's time now for another episode of one of our new segments, One and a Half Cents. Dear Rules Committee, Soon you will be asked to vote on a proposed rule change that will ban some or all techniques that create additional spin on the serve. As founder of one such technique in question, I believe I am entitled to offer an opinion. What's primarily in question is whether or not offensive serves are in the spirit of the game. It's been three years since I started imparting spin on the ball toss, however only recently has the style gained notoriety, largely due to the creative adaptation from fellow pro player Zane Navratil that incorporates the use of the paddle and or the paddle hand to provide a kind of pre-spin on the ball toss. Allow me to wind the clock back for a moment. One day in the late 90s, Levon Major hopped the kitchen line, hit a volley and won the point. Soon Ernie Perry performed the same move in a tournament, and the Ernie was born. When opposite Tyler Lung, we all fear the repercussions of an errant dink, and I wouldn't have it any other way, because without the threat of the Ernie, players wouldn't have learned how to defend against them. Moves and counter-moves. Levon and Ernie changed the game. The game grew. Pickleball was born in the mid-60s. You know what else started around then? The alley-oop. The wild new way to score hit the big time with Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain leading the charge. The technique is still used today, but we don't see it ten times a game. Why? Because teams learned how to defend against it. The game grew. In 2016, Marcin Rospensky and myself invented the shake and bake. We were being outdinked at the Lamaster Davison Classic and we needed a solution. After a couple of bottles of five-hour energy, we patented a new style of attack. In the following years, hundreds of players had to deal with Marson crashing the line and poaching with deadly intent. You know what those opponents did? They got better. Returns got deeper, players reacted faster, hit sharper volleys, and successfully learned how to defend against the attack. The game grew. The return of serve is a skill, and I believe we will stifle the development of that skill by taking away the most challenging serves. Necessity is the father of invention. These creative serves force players to improve their return skill. Deckel Barr can hit a serve faster than most people can pitch a baseball, and his opponents have to learn how to deal with it. Power is a skill. Spinning a ball is a skill. Accuracy is a skill. No one has ever been told that a ball toss can't be a skill. Not one referee has ever given me so much as a warning. I'm not 220 pounds with the power of an Israeli demigod, 
but I'm good with my hands, so that's what I use in order to compete in a rapidly deepening field. I believe that if the technique used is within the rules of the game, what difference should it make which skill is employed to make a serve better? If you ban one skill that makes a serve more offensive, under the pretense that the game wasn't intended to have offensive serves, doesn't it then stand to reason that you must ban any kind of offensive serve? Who wants to go down that road? There will be no serves with power, accuracy, or spin. That doesn't sound too fun, does it? Imagine baseball without curveballs. Imagine tennis without the kick serve. Basketball without the alley-oop. What if a technique was developed under the full rules of the game that allowed a player to serve at full speed with laser-like accuracy? I imagine it would be pretty effective. Should we take that technique away as well? What do we all get asked? When is the sport going to be in the Olympics? Well, I would argue that an offensive sport is more popular and much more marketable than a defensive one. People don't clamour to see Mayweather just duck and weave for 12 rounds. And people aren't on eBay buying tickets to the next NBA rebound championships. Let's imagine this scenario. It's the year 2032. We finally have flying cars, but the number one cause of death is flying cars. Pickleball is alive and well. 95% of professional pickleball players have either played ATP or WTA tennis or have been a pro player for more than 10 years. Ben Johns is approaching his mid-30s but still looks 18. And the best players are making 100 plus K in every tournament with mainstream media embracing the sport. A scrappy but adorable Australian washes ashore, starts playing the game and develops a new way to serve, well within the rules of the game. During tournaments, the serve is used and returned by essentially everybody who meets it. It's 2032 and the skill level required to return the serve is possessed by all but a few. The game grew. In this scenario, would we need to ban the serve? No. It would only be seen as innovation because there's no downside. It looks different, makes the game more interesting, and is only slightly more challenging. Now let's consider another scenario. The year is once again 2032. It's the 10-year anniversary of an important moment in the history of the game. The day the rules committee agreed to continue to allow one-handed ball toss to impart spin. In the years after the serve was born, players adapted their return techniques and developed their skills to meet the demands. The game grew. I don't think the problem is that the serve is not in the spirit of the game. It just came along too soon. If this serve was born 10 years from now, the spirit of the game wouldn't be affected because everyone would be able to return it. This is a classic chicken and the egg scenario. Let's not kill the egg before we meet the chicken. What's being deemed as not in the spirit of the game is being labelled so, not because of the action, but by the reaction. Not by the serve, but by the return. I present to you that it's too early to understand the reaction. I can also attest that the chief proponents of this serve, myself and Zane Navratil, both report the same thing. The players that have the most experience returning these serves don't have any problem getting it in. It's not a matter of if people will be able to return these serves effectively. It's just a matter of when. Each and every year the bar is raised. There are moments. People. Shots. Plays that never were are suddenly born. And once again, the game grows. This is one of those moments. I ask you kindly to allow the game to grow once more. Yours sincerely, Morgan Evans. Wow, some deep stuff there. Jeez, I should probably put the pen down sometime, right? 
Now, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, competition. I'm curious, when was the first money tournament you played? When, when would you say it actually transitioned to you know, what we broadly call professional pickleball today? Well, for me, and, and kind of looking back, I don't know the first couple of nationals if they had prize money uh, in those events. But for me, the first pro event I played in uh, was the first tournament of champions, which was uh, 2013 and actually in Ogden, Utah, before those Brigham City courts were created. Right. And uh, it was actually an invitational tournament and the draws were very small. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I can get some prize money to play pickleball. This is, you know, I was coming off of getting a free shirt and a paddle and I thought that was the most exciting thing ever. So Ooh. I remember not everyone accepted the invite. And so for myself being new in the sport, it was kind of a free for all for the rest of us to sign up. Uh, and they kind of took the first come first serve, uh, in that one. And I ended up playing, I'm trying to think of who I played with Justin Rogers. You remember Justin Rogers? Oh yeah. Lefty, right? Yeah. So two lefties, two lefties. Yeah. I think no we, wonder. I think we ended up getting fourth. We were fourth in doubles at TOC, the first one. And then I played with Christine Barksdale and we got bronze. So, so I ended up making some prize money or some money that nice. week. So it was, uh, so that, 20, 25 bucks. You, you know, we might add a zero behind it. Maybe it was two fifty. Oh, Okay. But, uh, That's not bad. Yeah. That was 2013. And I think that was the first probably major pro tournament with, with more prize money than, you know, a subway card for winning, uh, an event or something. <laughs> uh, good stuff. And it feels like I, I like I'm closing my eyes and I'm transporting myself back to, you know, those times where I don't know we were just figuring out the first iPhone or something like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> Different era, young and impressionable. I'm sure. <laughs> so there's a lot of new players coming in. It's the game is growing like wildfire. As I said, it's uh, it's getting crazy how quickly we're seeing new great players coming into the game. However. I'm sure yourself, much like myself, we often see players who look physically like they've got everything required, the speed, the talent, the agility. But when the tournament bell rings, something doesn't quite add up. And they struggle to kind of convert what looks to be a wealth of talent that should get them the gold or close to. But something about tournament pressure changes them. You've been competing at the highest level for uh, well, longer than almost everybody. Do you have any kind of tips or advice? Or what do you think that it is that makes someone being able to compete well as opposed to just be a great rec player? Sure. I think, I mean, this is going to sound simple, but tournament court time is really essential. Uh, I feel like you can be the world's greatest rec player, like you said, and have great skills. But if you don't practice in a pressure-filled environment, whether it's something you manufacture at home with the group, or it's just playing a few tournaments and getting your butt kicked to learn how to deal with different shots and scenarios. And, you know, you're not playing in front of 10 people at your home club. You're playing in front of a thousand people under the lights at nationals. I think court time is essential, but also something that I preach a lot in uh, my tennis coaching and pickleball coaching too, is finding a reset mechanism because I feel like people get really frustrated when things aren't going well for them. And in those big moments and tournaments, when you're competing against the best of the best, you got to have something that you tap into to relax you and get you back into your home court mentality where you can just relax and play your game. Mm. 
you know, for everyone has a different reset mechanism. Uh, for me, I, I actually, and my tennis boys, when I was coaching high school tennis, used to laugh at me when we talk about this, they'd say, coach, what are, what's your reset mechanism? And I said, guys, when I'm competing in a tennis match or a pickleball tournament, and it's a long point and the pressure's on and I'm hitting 40, 40 dinks back and forth with the great Morgan Evans cross court, <laughs> I think about my favorite type of Thai food because I love it and really? I relax. I do. Yes, I do. Everyone has something different. Interesting. Right? Is it a Penang chicken curry? Oh, uh, no. Just, just I, curious. I, it's actually uh, tofu pad thai. Oh, so really? Yeah. That sounds very healthy. You know, I've had a lot of had a little pad thai in my time, but I never had the tofu. It always scared me. Yeah. Well, you get the right sauce, then you can uh, devour that gelatinous substance. My first time having tofu, I remember I was visiting New York City for the first time ever, and I think I was fourteen or fifteen. And my parents let me off the hook and let me just wander the streets. Probably a terrible idea, <laughs> um, but I found one of those delis, and it was kind of like you know, grab a little bowl, fill it up, and it'll be nine ninety five or whatever. I had no idea uh, what a lot of the things were. And one thing, it looked like just cubes of chicken, and I thought, oh, that looks pretty safe. I'll mix it with this. turns out to be tofu, <laughs> and my life was never the same again. And, yeah. uh, I've, been, I've been afraid ever since. So Now it all makes sense, my friend. No. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> completely changed tact from your incredibly insightful uh, <laughs> and words of wisdom of finding your reset place. And uh, tofu pad thai is, is Wes Gabrielson's happy place, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it helps me hit a better backhand slice dink. So this is true. This is true. Yeah. Okay, and that, that brings up another uh, another point I've been meaning to talk to you about. We've seen over the last five, six years um, or so the rise in people driving third balls and playing more aggressively in general. I know I've seen you drive a few. They, they, they come like laser beams once in a while, but generally you tend to drop the third nine times out of 10. Would that be fair to say? I would say uh, 99 times out of 100, yes. Okay, yeah, it's probably even better. <laughs> you know, is that just something because you've historically always done that and you feel that's just your most comfortable um, shot to play? Or do you feel like it's just the best strategy the vast majority of the time? I, I think it's both. I think it's it's a comfort thing. It's kind of been my bread and butter uh, besides my backhand uh, slice dink. That's kind of been the shot that I'm comfortable with. I practice the most. I feel like it also sets my partner up the best, uh, especially if I hit that cross court, uh, whether it's from the deuce or the ad side or, or straight ahead sometimes too. But I, I feel like it's very circumstantial as well. I think in mixed, I will definitely drive the ball a lot more in mixed uh, on a third ball. Mm. Uh, and that could be based on return location. It could be based on a partner weakness on the other side of the net if, if a player struggles with it. But it's also, it depends on what my partner is comfortable with. But I, I feel like it's in men's doubles predominantly it is the best way for me to set up my partner. And I have this habit recently of playing a lot with partners who are about six foot four or six foot five. So I want to do anything nice. I can to set them up. So for quite some time, I was obviously playing with Marson and I found I had a better chance to set him up um, by driving the third. But I, when I look back at it, I'm thinking now it was, it was a bit more probably to do with the quality of my third shot drop, not being <laughs> quite uh, quite good enough. And, and, and I think the fact that at that particular time, pre-shake and bake, you know, there wasn't a lot of people doing it. So we, we kind of got away with it in a, in a shock and awe sort of scenario for a little while. And then everyone sort of figured it out pretty quickly. And 
and then yeah, moved. Uh, we had to kind of go back to basics again. I remember being uh, victimized by your shake and bake uh, many times in some <laughs> big tournament matches, specifically uh, TOC. I think it was 2017 when you guys won it. And uh, oh yeah, um, I think I was playing that year with Matt Wright, and I just remember going, "Wow, we got to change something because you guys were just." taking away everyone's ability to play their game by, by using that style. So, yeah. Do you know how it started? It I don't, was, I don't. Uh, it was because of Matt Goebel and Brent Ditzik. We were, I don't, do you remember Brent Ditzik? I do. Yeah, I do. Played much recently. Yeah. I and do. we all know Matty, obviously. Yeah. We were playing the, uh, La Master Davison classic. We were getting out dinked left, right and center by Ditzik and Goebel. And we, it was a nightmare. This was out in Arizona and uh, luckily the rain, we were, I think we were something like um, 8-1 down in the second and we were just murdered in the third, in the first. So it wasn't looking good. And the rain came in, we sat down and I think we both had at least one five-hour energy because we just felt like we were, we were struggling. That was our supplement of choice back then. It wasn't mm-hmm. smart. Nice, healthy choice, yep. <laughs> yeah, kid, don't do that. Anyway, for whatever reason, we realized, all right, if we're going to go out, we better go out swinging. We have got to change something. What about this? I'll I'll be on the left, and uh, any opportunity to to drive the third, we'll just try and play tennis and see if that works. You know, I'll try and rip it, and you get in there and be the Polish monster. At that time, I hadn't called him Polish monster yet, but I was about to. And sure enough, it, all it did was uh, stop them from being able to play their most comfortable game. Took them out of that comfort zone, and then we won. I think three matches straight, and it was wasn't until Weinback and uh, Oliver Strecker. Do you remember Ollie? I remember that tournament. I remember watching. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Ollie was a great player. Yeah, he was. God, it's a shame we we lost him. He was fun. Yeah, he was great. We had to go back to the homeland and live his life. Well, he could have lived it here. I I know. Sponsored him. I I know, but his, you know, his love was for uh, for Germany. He had to go back. I guess. Mm. Mm. Fair is fair. It's not a bad place to live. I've lived there for a little while, and they are surprisingly nice people. All right, let's uh, move on just slightly. You know, you're obviously uh, a teacher. I'm curious, what ages do you teach? So I teach high school, and I've kind of taught the whole gamut of ninth grade, 10th grade, uh, 11th and 12th. But this last year, I taught uh, mostly U.S. government. So it was a really good year to teach about government. A lot of good conversation. So mostly uh, 17 and 18-year-olds. Okay. All right. Well, that's so. Those are minds that you know can actually give you you know some real conversation. Yeah, especially uh, especially this year with uh, with everything you know the election. I, I say this year as in the school year uh, with the election. You know the insurrection, all that stuff happening. It was uh, mm. voter fraud claims. It was it was a lot of good conversation. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're at the helm there. Are they? Uh, are any of them into pickleball? Are you? Are you trying to insert some pickleball into their lives? You know, I when I was coaching the the high school tennis team here uh, on rainy days, we would play pickleball in the gym. Do you remember uh, the young man? He's about twenty now. Do you remember Will Gardner? He's a Selkirk player. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So William is uh, was a player on my tennis team, and uh, actually was one of my assistant coaches the last couple years my main drill partner in pickleball. Uh, but because of his success at the junior level with pickleball, a lot of our tennis boys knew about pickleball because of Will and his success. So a lot of those kids are starting to play more and more, which is fun to see. 
Yeah, so I actually got granted a leave of absence for one year from my teaching job. So oh, right. I'm, I've started to teach pickleball around here uh, just because it's, as you know, it's booming everywhere. More so, mm. I feel like, during COVID than ever before, at least up here. And I just looked at it and I went, you know, I've been teaching a lot. I enjoy it. Um, I'm making some good money with it. And let me let me see if I can get a leave of absence approved and do this for a year and then just see what I think. So I've done some camps and obviously a lot of privates. And then nice. I'm going to play about one travel tournament a month. So this will be the first time wow. for me in my 10 years that I'm going to play year round in tournaments. So. Wow. I'm cool. I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good summer. Of uh, I played about five tournaments. It's been fun. Good, good. Tell me, do you think pickleball will kind of always be piggybacking off tennis or tennis technique? Yeah, as long as you know tennis is is bigger than pickleball, do you think we'll always have crossovers, or will the technique we see you know hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, be you know entirely different from you know kind of what we see at the moment, whereby they very much look like they're playing you know, high level kind of close quarter doubles with, with also some soft stuff. I think we're going to see the technique be similar. I think it's going to be tennis based and, and this is no knock to people that come from other racket sports. Uh, I may get myself in trouble here, but if you look at, I feel like at the pro level, when you look at the top 20, 30 to 30 players on the men's and women's side, I feel like most of them have come from tennis. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. I mean, there's, there's some badminton folks, there's some table tennis folks, there's some racquetball folks, but I feel like at the highest level, you're going to see the technique taken directly from tennis technique. I mean, think about the way that you probably teach your pickleball lessons. There are a lot of crossover fundamentals that you teach in terms of body positioning and contact point mm. and things like that, uh, that you would teach to someone in tennis, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of going to hold judgment for a little while to see how well the Chinese and Japanese programs really progress, because I think we'll see just how well very, very high level table tennis players and uh, badminton players are able to come into the sport and, uh, I want to I see what they can do because their their kind of wrist strength and flexibility and their ability to counter spin is is second to none really. And I think more importantly, the distances involved with a very high level table tennis player is not too dissimilar to uh, the fourteen feet apart that we have at the kitchen line. So I, I'm I'm very curious to see if if the pure reaction speed advantage that the highest level table tennis players should have over tennis players will make a big difference. Yeah, I guess I didn't really think about it, not in terms of geography, because I agree those two. You mentioned China and Japan, were those the two? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think those two nations, obviously, with their racket sports excellence, just traditionally, it wouldn't surprise me to see maybe, like you said, the, the technique uh, maybe carry over more from table tennis or maybe badminton. But I, mm. I think uh, I, I never really thought about the table tennis court or at least the positioning being comparable to the the 14 feet but that that's a great point yeah well i mean it's actually something i thought of when when you were talking earlier about your first experience you were saying you were playing on a gym floor with a durable and therefore the rallies weren't lasting very long i think the kind of speed you must have experienced is you know likely much higher than you would actually get these days in any tournament would that be fair 
Yeah, and I think, gosh, I don't remember if Dura actually made an indoor ball for for gym classes. It, it, I don't think it was the same as the. Actually, it could have been the Dura Fast Forty. Now that I think about it, mm. but but I just remember, yeah, rallies and and the pace of play being so much faster. I remember it was so hard to score a point in singles because the return mm. was so devastating. You know, you just couldn't pick that ball up if it was a deep return. Uh, with that indoor durable and that, you know, that massive uh, wooden paddle too that we all play with. See, I would uh, I would wager that these are the very reasons why you got as good as you did. Not to say it wouldn't have happened organically, but when you're put in an environment that is forcing you to be faster than you would ever need to be in, say, the modern day, you can't help but have your body develop around that speed or that that distance. Did you ever read a book? There's a, it's a book called Bounce. It was similar to Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Anyway, the author, whose name name escapes me, anyway, he was he was a Commonwealth table tennis champion. He was a British gentleman. And as a child, the only place he had to play was a shed and there was no room uh, to stand back from the table. So he and a very high-level player would have to train without being able to take you know even one step back, which means their reaction times developed around a shorter distance than what was actually possible. And his hand speed, therefore, uh, was you know, arguably the best in the game at the time because he just got so used to being having to be faster. Mm. And what was the, the name of the book was Bounce? Is that what you said? Bounce, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's interesting. I, I've never really thought about the, when you're asking about my game, I've never really thought about playing in that environment and how that impacted my development in the sport. Uh, but that's interesting. I, I, I've always kind of contributed the hand speed for me and court coverage because I'm not the fastest person on the planet. I like to take big <gasps> steps to cover the court, uh, no. which is also why I like my third ball drop to give me time yeah. to get in uh, as opposed to driving. And, you know, as as our friend Brian Staub used to call him to get the gunboats into the uh, kitchen line that I have below my legs. It's, it's not an easy <laughs> task. Uh, but, but I think I, I always kind of have thought about my progression as a result of other sports. I was a, you know, a baseball player who played third base and always had to deal with fast ground balls. And so mm. that helps your hand eye and your footwork. Then I was a soccer goalie, similar kind of frame and movement, and then to, to doubles oh, wow. tennis. So it, that really helped me as I moved through okay. the sports. Nice. Interesting. Have you ever thought about the fact that you being left-handed gives you faster reactions? I haven't. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a real thing, apparently. Oh, really? It's, it's bec- yeah, it's because the, uh, the part of your brain that has to deal with that particular spatial reaction, uh, I think it's called, might be something different, but it is the right-hand side of the brain and mm. for everybody, which has a direct link to your left side. For us, for right-handed players, it has to send that signal over to the left and then mm-hmm. have it come over to the right. So yeah. it takes a little bit longer. So you have an advantage. That's interesting, just with the, the hemispheres of the brain, like you said. But something I know my mother always pointed out, too, is she said, you know, I think your years of, I mean, I, I took piano lessons for a long time. And, and I think that helped with the ambidexterity, too, just oh, as you yeah. as you advance through piano and you have to use both hands to move fluidly. It's, it, I think that's helped. I never really thought about yeah. that until she mentioned that a few years ago. Once in a while, I'll play chess backwards. I, I've, for some reason, after I kind of stopped playing golf a lot, I've picked up 
chess in a ridiculous fashion. And uh, to challenge myself, I'll switch the board and try to play my pieces, but from my opponent's point of view. Oh. And it's a very, it's a very weird sensation. But once you get used to it, you you can kind of start recognizing how your brain is working differently. I mean, chess chess is just great for your, your brain in general. But I always play two or three games before I do these podcasts because it's a good way to just kind of fire up the uh, the old synapses. Oh, I like that. Give it a go. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Now we're on to the million dollar question, and you are, I think, acutely qualified to answer this one. What's it going to take for someone to beat this Ben Johns bloke that everyone keeps going on about? <laughs> Youth and athleticism. No, I, I, I feel like, I mean... All right, you, so you and I are done. You, no, 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 no. Remember, we're, we're, still, we're still in the 30-year-old club, I, I assume. I'm 39, mate. Jeez, I'm hanging on. Even though in Newport, I think you said, you're older than me, Wes, aren't you? And I went, thanks, Morgan. I love you, my friend. I so, Yes, I apologize. Well, you've, you've had gray in the beard for longer than me. I've got um, seven or eight hundred hairs, but yeah, I just, yeah. I just assumed. Uh, well, uh, you know, was... I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> the gray's been coming in since I was 18, but that's genetics to thank for that. Yeah, I think you and I were blessed amongst you know, it's a bigger and bigger group of people that that have played against Ben and know Ben personally. You know, I think a lot of people in pickleball who don't know Ben think about Ben and his incredible shot making ability uh, because that's what they see on camera, right? Or they see in person. Yeah. And I feel like Ben's greatest strength is his mind. I feel like his mm. court, his court IQ, and his just ability to see angles and just how. I don't know, geometrical, the right word is his game. He just, I think that is his biggest strength. And I think he is a major student of the game, even as he's dominated the last couple of years, he's always looking to get better uh, physically, yeah. but more so mentally. And I think when you get a really high level, let's say a uh, ex tennis player, pro tennis player uh, gets into pickleball, when they tap into that mental side that Ben has, then I think that would be the blueprint for beating him. Yeah. Because those people coming from tennis have those physical skills already, right? Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you agree with my assessment, but I, I feel like his mind is so much more of a weapon even than his amazing physical skills. Yeah. No, look, you're right. There are a lot of players on, on tour at the moment that physically look like they should have an advantage over him. But when it boils down to it during the most pressureful situations, it's which, what, you, uh, what kind of shot selections you, you make. And he has a way to force people to have to try to manufacture a, a shot that it wasn't really there. And yes, it might look great on ESPN if you pull it off, but... Mm -hmm. If you only pull it off one in three times, you've just lost two and four to Ben and Colin. And yeah, I think it, it just looks like whether it's a war of attrition in a cross-court dink or a hand-speed battle, there needs to be someone that comes along that can not just be patient enough to play either one of those games, but obviously have the physical skills to clean up the mess when it hits the fan, so to speak. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think the other thing that he is so good at, not just his strategy, and his mental toughness, but his focus level. I mean, he is a very fun, enjoyable person when we're not playing tournaments. I'm not saying he's not enjoyable mm -hmm. when he plays tournaments, but he is so focused. 
I mean, I, I've, yeah. I've been able to play a couple tournaments with him. I think we played you and Tyson at the Triple Crown tournament. Remember that tournament down in... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah I, I do remember that. I felt I played with him the last day of that event because I think we played one day with a different person, right? We played each day yeah, with a right. different person. We played two years in a row, and I just was amazed at his focus level, his mental toughness, and I always like to say... Playing with him as a partner, it's almost like you're a, a hood ornament on a Lexus. You're just there to uh, support him as he's doing most of the work. <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing how he does seem to play better with uh, much more passive partners. You know, someone who's prepared to you know, basically sit in the corner and let Ben do most of the work. But it's not really a knock on anything but the dimensions of the court. I mean, let's be, let's be honest, we're using a badminton court for... A game that isn't badminton and it's no one's fault that you know the team of ben and simone are that much better if simone stays you know pretty close to that sideline and ben uses the kind of power and wingspan he's got to to dominate the game you know it's only a 20-foot court and a young man can cover that yeah Uh, if it was if it was 30 you you would see a lot more chivalry (laughs) sure unintended chivalry in uh, in mixed doubles well and i think that's been you know if you talk to Simone about it, that's probably been a, a bit of an adjustment because, uh, you know, she was used to when, when you started playing and I had been playing for a while, when Simone got into the game, I mean, she was, she still is an amazing player, obviously, but she mm. was such a warrior who almost had to hit every ball. You know, you yeah. think about mixed and she could do that all day and be successful and won almost everything. Right. But now it's, it's kind of been fun to watch. I've, I've played them a couple of times with various partners uh, by my side, but watching them and, you know, her not having to hit as many balls as mm. before, but when she's given the opportunity, it's lethal. You know, she's just yeah. almost priming to, to, to do something aggressively, even with the first dink or first ball she hits. Yeah, certainly. I had her on the podcast a couple of months ago and yeah, I asked her, you know, how she feels about this and, you know, the there's certain percentage of players out there, well, general public that look at how they play and think, oh, it's not fair, you got to let her play. She is completely okay with it and loves the fact that he can take over, you know, so much of the court and win because it allows her to be fresher for her women's doubles. Uh, where she certainly will have to do more work and potentially singles. So it's a business, you know, it's a both a game, it's entertainment, it's a sport, but it is a business at the professional level. And she can certainly see the forest through the trees. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to talk about body preservation, how she probably appreciates that as she's got more energy to play those other events, right? That you, that you yeah. mentioned. And, and what's, what's amazing to me is, I get asked this question a lot by higher level tennis players in our area who come into pickleball and they look at Ben and and Simone play mixed. And they think a lot of people think men think I need to take that much court and hit that many balls and mixed. And I go, no, that's a, that's an exception. (laughs) I said, I feel like the best and I'm going to leave names out. Forgive me if I do, but I look at the people (laughs) like Ben, obviously I look at Matt, Wright, I look at Riley Newman amongst mm. others, that they are some of the most successful male mixed players on the tour, tours, I should say, because of their body positioning, not necessarily them taking every ball. And I think that's mm. the biggest mistake that men's pro players make in mixed or anyone in general is 
it's one thing to insert yourself and make yourself feel known on the court uh, by your opponents, right? But are you going to take the ball at the right time? Because I see sometimes people take too many dinks from their partner and it disrupts mm. the flow, right, of that team. And so many of the top females in pickleball can hit behind the guy across court, right, for a winner. Yeah. You come. Yeah. So, so that's why I mentioned those three guys, and there's plenty of others that are the best at inserting themselves and then picking the right moments to attack. Uh, I think you're exactly right. The temptation for anyone who kind of goes into the ladies' perceived territory is to, well, I'm here now, I better attack and, uh, you know, go full Tarzan. And I think it's a sign of a great mixed player that can go over there, realize, all right, this shot's not actually here. I'll just feed the ball behind the other player and I'll get back into a, a slightly more neutral position, not necessarily needing to beat their chest on every single mm-hmm. poach. Wow. Where's Gabrielson? This has been an honor and a privilege, man. I feel like we've got almost everything done, but we could probably go for another four or five hours. <laughs> I'm sure you're a busy man, so I will let you go. But um, thank you so much for your time, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, chat with you, my friend. We don't get to see each other very often, so even hearing your voice is a, is a wonderful thing these days. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> All right, mate. You take care of yourself, and we will see you at the next tournament. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care, mate. This podcast was powered by Selkirk. This podcast is also brought to you by the next generation of Selkirk Paddle, the Vanguard. Well, folks, that's all we've got time for. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, I'm Morgan Evans, and this has been More or Less Pickleball. I think he's joined a dolphin commune, and uh, he's with the fishes.